Welcome to Beyond, conversations with artists, makers, explorers who have gone outside of the norm to create their own true world, to sing their own precious song. Each of us is born with a song inside, but most will die having never sung it. Imagine if, as a little child, instead of being asked, what will you do when you grow up? What will you be? Or what kind of job will you get when you grow up? If instead you are told, now is the time to listen. As you grow, listen for the sounds of your song. The song that comes from your blood, your bones, your people. Listen for the melody, the verses, the tune. And when you hear your song, sing it. Imagine that kind of world. That's the kind of world I'm devoted to building. I am your host, Daphne Cohn, the creator of multiple online programs, courses, and within a community for artists, makers, and writers dedicated to the courage and practice of singing their own song. I ask you, are you ready to sing your own song? Are you ready to go beyond? My guest today is Megan Watterson. Megan is a feminist theologian. She writes about Mary Magdalene and the Divine Feminine. And one could listen to this conversation and think initially that it's about religion, Christianity, and what it means to be a woman in a male-dominated theology. But it isn't. It's about soul work and having the courage to sit still and listen for what's true. It's about battling the doubts and fears to put into the world the voice you came here to speak. It's about making your thing no matter the forces against it and being the lighthouse for others, the ones made of the same fabric so that they can find you. It's about bravery and heart, honesty and perseverance. I needed this conversation. I've listened to it at least four times. I've taken it into my writing and pondered some of its deepest truths. It's for any woman who has struggled to claim her worth, share her truth, or make the thing she most longs to make. As best-selling author, speaker, and scholar, Megan writes, To me, being spiritual is less about learning something new and more about remembering what I have always known. Being spiritual is a process of stripping down to what is authentic for me, for my life. Getting spiritually taken is about having the courage to be radically open about the truth of who we are with no exceptions and no apologies, to reveal ourselves without judgment or shame. This is exactly what Megan does in our conversation. Some of the things we talk about in this conversation are working through the panic attacks and the intense doubt that arose when Megan began to write Mary Magdalene Revealed, the wisdom of the body and the power of living an embodied life, knowing your worth while doing your soul work, the deep need for the divine feminine, and doing the hard work of going in to give to the world the truth of who you are. You can learn more about Megan at meganwaterson.com, and you can listen to this and all other podcasts at daphnecone.com. May this conversation inspire you to go within to the raw, wild expanse of mystery that is your beating heart, vibrating body, pulsing life, in order to go beyond to utter the sacred, your words, dance, painting, art, to sing your song. Welcome, Megan, to the podcast Beyond. It's great to have you. Thank you. So the, the first thing I want to ask is I always ask about how creativity showed up for you as a little girl. And with you, I'm thinking in particular, there's both creativity and then there's spirituality. So the creativity part is if you were drawn as a girl to writing, if that was part of your path when you were young, and then where the beginnings of this spiritual longing came from, if it was present for you as a little girl? So what I noticed in terms of the creativity, which was such a fascinating experience in terms of getting to know myself, there's this imperative 
within a lot of Gnostic scripture to know oneself. It's really what the word gnosis in Greek translates to, is to know yourself. But what some don't realize is that that form of knowledge is speaking about a way of not knowing ourselves as in just the mind or the intellect. It's experiencing ourself. It's knowing because we have an experience of what's true for us. And that's the sort of more rooted definition of Gnostic. And my first encounters of you know, feeling a sense of the words would be joy, bliss, fulfillment, purpose, alignment only came when I would write these stories. And, and the way that they started was that I loved to take these long walks in my backyard. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, walking on cliffs, you know, like that were very dramatic. Of course, I lived in like rural Ohio, so it didn't look (laughs) anything like that. But it was like these dramatic cliffs by the sea. And I was going on these great adventures. And during that time, I would every once in a while begin to hear like this italicized faint voice, you know, this, this distant distant voice sort of starting a sentence. Sometimes it would be one word, but sometimes it would be, it would start with a sentence, but the sentence somehow, you know, like a a seed, um, it carried a whole story with it, the energy of it. It had this force. And so then I would scurry back, you know, I would, I would run back as if, you know, carrying that seed, like it was Mm -hmm. fragile and I needed to get it all down because the energy of it felt almost bleeding. And so I'd write and write, and I would write this, this little story. And I would know it was done because I would, felt like, I would feel like that first sentence had been said. And there was some kind of truth in it that was communicated, even if it was like some wacky story of this little girl who lived in a lavender tree, you know? I, I mean, it was, it, was, it was really interesting. And the pride I felt, when my family, I would, sometimes I would read them out loud, my poor family, like at dinner, you know, at dinner and I would read the story and the, the pride I felt was something that went deeper and further back than my own little girl body. If that makes sense. Like the pride felt like it connected me to a lineage I didn't even understand yet. It just felt like, um, this deep, powerful ancient tradition and the validation I got when I would see my mom's face light up or, and it was kind of a bewildered awe, like, who are you? (laughs) You know, and, and where did this come from? And so that expression of that voice is inextricably linked. That voice, which is also an experience, which is also a truth and an experience of the truth of who I am, that was the beginning also. It's inextricably linked to my spiritual path. First of all, before we get into the spiritual path part, then this idea of experiencing oneself, like when you started by saying it's not just of the mind, it's not just of the intellect, it's a full embodiment of or, and I'm, I'm wanting to, go deeper in that of how how you have come to understand that through both your study of maybe the Gnostics or a broader broader study, I don't know, but through that and through your life. Like, what does that mean to you? The body never lies. This is a truth that I um, bear witness to and I believe and I've experienced is that the body never lies. So I would love to be able to say, oh, here's how you recognize and can identify the truth within your own body. There's no such thing as someone outside of you being able to teach you how to recognize your own truth. That's our work for each of us. We have to do that. It's sacred work. And it has to do with 
mining through the various layers. When, when I got to the gospel of Mary, I felt like it illuminated for me all of these experiences I had already had. And for me, truth is it's an actual experience in my body. So as I was reading the gospel of Mary, I knew it was true for me because of the way my body was reacting to it, the way I felt in my body as I was reading it. And the gospel of Mary articulates these seven powers that we all will encounter when we're human. And they really are almost to me like reading the ingredients label of what it means to be human. And the difference between the gospel of Mary listing these seven powers, which the gospel of Mary is a first, second century Christian text, whereas later in Christianity, they'll be redefined and completely edited into the seven demons, the -hmm. seven deadly sins. The, The seven powers are simply these sort of climates of the ego that we all get compelled by while being human. And they're not a sin. They're nothing to be ashamed of. But these powers are what we need to become aware of so that we can then also know truth. So for example, the seventh power that Mary lists is probably the one we all know most intimately, and it's the compulsion of rage. So the idea is that if we can become intimate with the body, right? Like there's been centuries and millennia of dividing us from the body, of telling this narrative that the body is somehow less than. The body is not as sacred as the soul, right? And a female body is less sacred than a male body. There's all these various hierarchies, but being embodied is something that became more scrutinized and then vilified. And when women were given the heave-ho, the idea of Christianity in the fourth century, so too was the body and sexuality. And this idea that you could be both human and divine, which is what the gospel of Mary declares is the whole point of being here, is to be both human and divine. One thing that you just said that just really stood out for me was this idea that for centuries, for millennia, we have been given this message, many, many, many messages about um, the, especially for a woman, the, the like disgrace of the body and to right. separate from the body. I often will think, how come it's so challenging for me to to really be in my body. And it's like, oh, right. because it's been going on for so long. Right. I want to stay with the body for a minute because specifically as women and then as artists and creatives, makers, which are most of the people who listen to this, there seems to be this, this very intimate connection between what we make and being able to be in our body. And I was interviewing David White and he talked about how in order to create, we actually need to inhabit our physical body. But then there is the challenge of that because to do that, we often need to heal all the places we have vacated our body. Right. Can you speak to that or like maybe from the place of your personal journey and just what that looks like to begin to inhabit and then create from that? There's a passage from A Course in Miracles that says the most sacred place on earth is where an ancient hatred has become a present love. Mm -hmm. And I put that like a banner above me for years of my life, really understanding that each moment I would rather disassociate you know, and, and not have to experience what's really going on in my body. My, the body for me is our most faithful warrior and, and storyteller and story keeper. 
the body for me doesn't heal in a linear way and doesn't live in linear time. The, the body can hold for us what in the moment we were not, we could not have actually experienced. And it'll hold for us what, you know, it'll carry for us what we could not have faced, say, when we were a child or the depth of the trauma was just too great. And so my experience, which again is, for me, it's just all interwoven with the the spiritual path. I cannot imagine a spiritual path that does not include my body. And for me, the deepest healing was being able to go back to those places of earliest trauma and allow them to become a present love. It sounds to me is just this presence more than anything. Like it's not necessarily this agenda of I'm going to heal this. It's just returning to. Yes. 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 And I think that's one of the most liberating aspects about Mary's gospel was that it allowed me to understand that there isn't this guru master status, you know, one and done, <laughs> like finish line we cross or we reach. It's, it's more of a, a deepening, a spiraling inward and returning to those places that we have not been able to love we've not been able to look at and finding the strength and the courage, which usually comes with years to one day live into a time when we can let love reach where it has not been before within us and release those stories. The body has been carrying, you know, this is okay. This is a little bit of an aside, but I'm, I'm really curious about this because I've had your first book reveal for a long time. And so I was rereading it in preparation, but then I was listening to a lot of interviews and I was noticing something and it took me a little while before I could put my finger on it. And then I realized there's this innocence about you that I am curious if, first of all, if you resonate with that, but if, and if you do, if it connects in some way to this love that you have cultivated that you've stayed so deeply in touch with and then cultivated in your life by being in your body and the work that you do. Yeah. What I feel as you're saying that is the awareness, the, the deep knowing of how constantly beginner I am. The, the aspect of what I resonated with was that statement that I was making about the relief Mary's gospel gave me, which was that we, we never get there. It's, it's a constant return to love. It's a constant waking up in one of these, you know, knee deep, neck deep in one of these realms of the ego. Um, one of them is, is clinging, which I am, I'm so good at. I, I, I cling so desperately to what the ego thinks I want. And like those stuffed animals, I always see that image of the, you remember the monkey with the yep. Velcro hands? That is me. So I just <laughs> cling to what I think I know I need and, and want. When we're neck deep in the, the real suffering of that, like it's, it's real life. Like for example, to ground it, I am clinging to this desire to, to be partnered. Like I've always been living out this chronic nun situation. Home base is just being this hermit. And I go into these states where I just really am clinging to this desire for partnership. And to feel that, to feel that clinging of like, I am so done with being alone. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing 
wrong with feeling that human grief and, and, and true suffering of like, I, I'm done, you know, Groundhog Day, be over. I don't want to wake up alone anymore. There's the, the difference is that when we don't have the choice to move from it, when we get really into a state where we're stuck in it, where we can't see a way out, we're just in that suffering of really not being able to enjoy or to be present to what actually is serving and happening and, and what is in my life. So that's a moment when I can practice releasing the ancient Christians used to refer to it as living remembrance that ancient Christian practice was just to release that clinging, which doesn't mean I am denying or not facing or acknowledging the reality of that human part of me that doesn't want to be alone. I do acknowledge it and I feel it and I allow myself to feel it all. Like I have moments where I stop folding my son's laundry and I just bawl and I just, and I identify and I know exactly what's happening and I just bawl. And I let that happen, but I don't have to stay there. The living remembrance part is bringing the soul to that moment, bringing love to that moment. So providing for myself what to some extent I think that external thing is going to provide for me. And it's showing up in that way again and again by returning to this presence that is already right here within me, this presence of love. And, it, and that's the practice. Yes. And it reminds me so much of when kids are little, it's like before you've learned to be ashamed of how you feel before you've right. learned that you should show up a certain way. It, the kid, right. something <laughs> happens, they just cry. And then they're done. Right. They're, right. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. And three minutes later, they are laughing like it never right. happened. <laughs> right. So it's, it's such an honoring in that because like, this is what's happening. There's no story around it. It's just what's right. happening. And I, there's, there's yeah. no judgment. There's yeah. no judgment. I think that's really what can keep us from allowing that love to flood and overwhelm whatever power we're currently experiencing or feeling compelled by, it's the judgment. Well, it's your fault that you're still alone. Well, you haven't taken enough workshops. Anne Lamont refers to it as bitch radio, just yeah. suddenly blaring and, and creating all this judgment um, around why you're just being human. And you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do when you're in any of these seven powers. We are meant to be human. It is the whole point of being here. And that actually makes sense in terms of two, in terms of what you were talking about with the body, because that's the difference in same thing with a little kid is it's not spinning into some other space of the mind. It's just being in it. And right. that's in your body. Right. Yeah. Right. There's one last thing I want to ask, at least for now about the body, because I really do want to get into not just this whole area of spirituality, but there's so many pieces around that with soul work and um, worth and all of that. But the, the thing I wanted to ask was you had said, I think that so many of us still fear being fully present in the body mm. because it means owning just how powerful we are. Yeah. The responsibility is overwhelming. And I, I just, yeah, I wanted to understand that better. Like how being in our body is equal to how powerful we are. Because when, when we stop this whole effort of trying to find the answer outside of us, you know, directing all of our energy outward, searching, 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 which again, there's no shame in that. And we very much need to do that. Like those parables where the spiritual seeker has to go off and go all around the world. And then the treasure the seeker was trying to find was buried in the backyard. Like that, that is the way of the love warrior. The seeking is important. But when we 
finally stop and we begin to get still. We begin to have the courage to get still. We begin to have the courage to face what we already know is true. So often that whole effort of looking outside of us is a distraction. It's because we, we aren't ready yet to really face what we already know. And when we know it, we can't unknow it. Every time you look yourself in the mirror and really look at your eyes and not like the lines around your eyes or anything <laughs> like that, like you really look at the presence beaming from out of them. You know exactly what you need to do. And for some of us, that can mean upending our entire lives. And we don't want to know that yet. And so we, we play out all these little excursions and distractions and until we're really ready to go inward and, and come face to face with what we already know is true about us. And, and for some of us, that can mean losing partners, losing family members, losing our job. There is real terror in confronting sometimes what we already know about ourselves, And also a lot of the dynamics we've built around us are all in play of this idea that we are who we're presenting. So we've built up a whole scaffolding around this idea of who we are. And so if we go in and do the work of finding out what's really true, that whole scaffolding is going to fall off. I mean, talk about being naked. Like if you think being naked feels vulnerable, like actually being without clothes, it can't even come close to touching what it feels like for some of us to really reveal the truth of who we are and to allow what's on the inside to actually be visible on the outside as well. Okay. That's perfect segue because originally I had the creativity habit podcast and then it became beyond because I didn't want to feel limited to stories of artists and makers and how they became the artists and makers that they are. I wanted to also just open it up to all all people who have gone beyond in some way in with their lives they've created their own lives mm -hmm. and this is so linked to revealing the truth of who we are and the courage it takes to do that so now i want to get a little more into your journey around this because you have taken from my vantage point so many risks to walk the path that you're walking. And so let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is going into this field of, the, of Christianity, of divinity, of, of religion, this male-dominated arena, and coming in as like this female warrior. I mean, how, how did that begin? I, I would have to start with my, my great-grandmother, Big Margie, who was tiny, but she just had a tremendous presence. And who, she was just a flaming feminist. And she went to Smith College, which is an all-women's college. And it's where I ended up going really in her honor and to literally follow in her footsteps. And then also my mom, who always felt like, her grandmother was actually her mother and they had a very close connection. And my mom was also and is a fierce feminist and, and took it a step further to a certain degree and was really more of what I have identified as intersectional feminism, which is more of what my mom lived out and is living out where to her, feminism really means that we are all equal and have those inherent rights based on that reality and deserve that, no matter race, religion, sexuality, orientation, any of that. And so for her, the church was an affront to so much of what she 
uh, believe to be true. And she actually always said to me that God is good. Whatever God is, God is good. And I understood what she meant because it felt like God is in those moments when we experience good and when we believe in the good in others. So I was raised feminist, therefore, not religious. And I think that gave me a hermeneutics, this lens in seeing the world that made it possible for me to eventually, I think I was 11 when I first went to the First Unitarian Church of Cleveland, because my mom really didn't know what to do, I just couldn't stop with the existential questions. It was just a part of my curiosity and my response to feeling every once in a while when I would go on those walks and when I would kind of hear that presence, that voice that sort of spoke in this distant italics and yet was also somehow in the silence of my own heart, I I would feel this great big unsayable love and I swam in it. It was within me, but around me. And I assumed or I trusted that that's what church was. It was where a whole bunch of us who hear our hearts get together and figure out how to be in this world and yet always with a stethoscope to this great big unsayable love inside of us. So it was a great shock to read the Bible and to really feel, though I couldn't articulate it yet, the hierarchical structures of the church, the silencing of women, the shaming of gays and just people who are different, the, the echoes of the issues of racism and misogyny. It was like all of there. And it felt so confusing to me. Again, the body never lies. And so I broke out into hives as we were reading the story of Sarah and Hagar. I, I just completely broke out in hives. And then I was angry. And so I left. And then I was just weeping by the time my mom picked me up because I was terrified. I was terrified because I just felt how in the world am I ever going, one, to find the people who experience the world the way that I do? How am I ever going to find my community? And two, I am the sex that's not considered sacred. I realized and I really understood in that moment the danger of being female and, and that for thousands of years, God was seen as male and, and masculine and the father only. So there was a deep, deep fear. And in the great Buddhist tradition, that was my koan, that haiku of a hive across my face. I had to live into understanding why did my body have such a visceral reaction to the Bible? What truth was, what wisdom was my body trying to tell me? I love this because it speaks to this idea of, I mean, it's what your book is called, Reveal, your first book, but is that it will, it gets revealed to you. Like you had this break out of hives when you were 11 and, and then it became this journey of understanding that it was a revealing, it wasn't unearthing. Right. I mean, the thing that is so fascinating about that is yet you still felt compelled to follow a path, a religious spiritual path. So there was something in you that said, even though this feels really wrong. Yes. So because that great big unsayable love was more real than anything I could read or meet within the church. It was more real. It, it was so real to me that there really was a core belief that one day I would find it. There's this path in theology called 
the via negativa. And the idea is that you know what God is by realizing what God is not. So I really paid close attention to that. It's not this, not that sort of theological path. And I very much recognized the aspects that didn't match that great big unsayable love inside of me. It didn't feel like it was being practiced or preached um, or encouraged in that space. But I, I felt certain I would live into it. And I believed it was more real, if that makes sense. It, the yeah. experience of it was something that was true that I could locate in my body, like a bone, like something that was, it, it was mine and it was real and it was more than me and it was gifted to me and it was my true North. So it guided me through studies and, and listen, I couldn't, although I, I felt like I was shot out, out the womb with the whole feminist arrow I couldn't get close to Christianity after that initial experience. My path really focused on women's voices and the the buried stories of the goddesses and dakinis and Buddhas that had both a fierce and what was more understood to be masculine or ferocious or human or sexual. I I loved those stories within the world religions that allowed the female and divine to have her body back because the, the Virgin Mary just was not doing it for me. And she was really the reason why I applied to Harvard Divinity School because of a Catholic charities organization I was working with in California with pregnant teenagers. And these teens, some had been raped, some had um, you know, never felt like they really had a choice. The term was used at that time as prostitution, but of course, we're talking about 14, 15-year-old girls, so that's rape. So the being around these vibrant, powerful, amazing, amazing humans. And then we had this, the rinky-dink, four-foot plastic Virgin Mary, and her presence just made them feel so much more far removed Mm -hmm. from being sacred, from being holy, from having anything to want to do with their body from ever believing that maybe they are as sacred as she is. So I wrote about that disparity. I wrote about the fact that I had this profound privilege to know about Kali in the Indic tradition, to know about Green Tara in Tibetan Buddhism, to know about the Black Madonna which so few people know about in the U.S., but she is venerated all throughout Europe. There's 500 Black Madonnas. And she's known as being the one that people pray to, for example, in France, who have been through the fires in life. And and who could need that more than these women? And so I, I wanted to create a bridge. And Reveal was really my response to the theological degree I attained at at Harvard because I wanted to be able to offer these stories that to me were so healing and and that were about that reunion of the self and the soul of understanding that being female is is sacred and profound yeah and of course i mean what if you think about these girls who are raped and then the figure they're supposed to turn to is of is the virgin i mean it's like everything about them is already wrong right yeah okay so basically you're led by love by this knowing of what it is and that that's it like that is that's your north star right and i think about Myself, I think about anyone who is 
so drawn by something that is bigger, like in your case, you talk about this love, and then there's the humanness of fear and how intense the doubt and the mm. all of that can be on this path and this what feels like a battle between the two. Mm. How has that shown up in your life and how do you work with that? So when when I was at Harvard, I had the immense opportunity to study with Dr. Cornell West, and his class was like going to church. It was like finally being able to enter the sanctuary that I thought church was going to be as a little girl. Every time I, I walked into his class, I felt that physically, viscerally, I felt that love when he would speak, when he would talk about this idea that justice is what love looks like in public. You know, when he would speak of a kind of integrity that I don't see necessarily in the institutions, I mean, corporate or religious, the, the integrity of the fact that we're meant to all be brothers and sisters, like the way he would speak my entire, it was like the, the hairs on my arms, forget it, just my arms, it was my legs, the back of my neck would just give him a standing ovation several times throughout his, I, call, I almost called it a sermon. They really were sermons. They, they weren't lectures, they were sermons. And it was that experience of, you know, you meet certain people, there's doubt, there's so much doubt because of course, you know, it was, what, what was my profession gonna be? Like, what, what was I gonna do if I can't be in the church? If I can't be ordained, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And how am I going to earn a living? That experience of meeting him was one of many moments where I felt that we meet these other souls that help our own soul evolve. And encountering his presence and his alignment, his integrity, his truth telling about how he feels Christ truly shows up in this world. The inspiration I received and continue to receive from the way he shows up in the world, the way he is what love looks like in public. That was validation. It's very internal. It's not that I knew what was going to be next. I just knew I was right where I needed to be. And that's what tended to be all I got, you know, like one veil lifting at a time. There were moments like that where I would meet with someone like that who could conjure a whole Christianity from antiquity in, in the things he said, where I felt like I am where I'm right now in this moment. I don't know what's next. I don't know how I'm meant to live my truth, but I know that right now in this moment, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. So I kept anchoring myself, you know, almost like a rock climber as they're going up. You, you put this like metal peg when you've made it up to a certain point so that if you fall, you only fall to that peg. And that's what those encounters with different souls felt like in my life. It was like that nailed a peg. It hammered this peg into the, the mountain I was climbing within me. And it was like, when I fall next, I'm not falling, meaning doubt myself completely <laughs> and like completely panic about what I'm doing and how am I going to contribute to the world. For me, it just always felt like I was walking around with an ocean inside me and I had this tiny red coffee stir. That's all I had. That's all I had to siphon a whole ocean inside me. So the, the pressure of uh, the weight I felt constantly of like, what do I do to, to express this great big unsayable love? It was so overwhelming. And encounters like that, that it's like the next time I would fall into that well of doubt, I would only fall so far. 
because mm. of having met with him. Wow. That brings me to the soul, the meeting of the soul work and the world in which we live. And you had talked about, there's two things I want to read actually that you said. One was in an interview where you talked about, it was really not until you needed to support yourself and your son Hmm. and that you said, that is what pushed me to be able to see that who I am and what I have to offer has unique worth in the world. Hmm. And that worth is being devalued by me, not asking the world to support me to be who I am. And then at another point, um, You wrote, soul work is not about martyrdom. The vision of sainthood that demands lack and deprivation is no longer useful. Soul work is about divine reciprocity in which the love you give is the love you receive in equal measure. You know you are doing your soul work in the world if you feel that you are receiving as much as you are giving. And I wanted to bring this up because this idea of money and soul work can be really hard to reconcile so, um, how, right. yeah, but so. o- only, only when we're still living in that, that p- dualistic paradigm, that idea that the body and the material needs that we have to have while we're human, while we're incarnate, we need a certain level of being provided for in, in order to function. And to be an artist, it, it isn't a nine to five like job. This is work that we do where it, it's linked to who we are. So the work that I did to write Mary Magdalene Revealed had everything to do also with healing myself. And it's interwoven. But if I wasn't supported financially, to be able to write and, and to heal, I couldn't serve. And I think what I began to really understand when I didn't just read Mary's gospel, I experienced it, I encountered it, I lived it. And at the end of Mary's gospel, there is this questioning of everything Mary Magdalene has revealed to the disciples, everything. Or who's doing the question? So so Peter is the original one who says at the beginning of her gospel, sister, we know the Savior loved you more than all other women. We know the Savior loved you more than all other women. Tell us the things that he revealed to you, which we do not know because we have not heard them. And then Mary says, I will teach you about what is hidden from you. So that's how it opens. And then it, the whole middle part is about the, the, the esoteric, the mystical, or the secret teach, teachings that Christ gave to Mary alone, that she was meant to then give to the disciples and all of us. But what happens at the end is that Peter questions, he doubts everything that she has revealed because how could Christ have given these secret teachings to her, a woman. That's set aside in parentheses to emphasize that it's, he's doubting her because she is a woman. So what hit me was that in, in our own ways, in our own lives, I haven't met a woman who hasn't had to live out that claiming of her own worth from within her, that claiming of it. And and that to me had everything to do with then finally being able to ask for my worth. Like we talk about women's worth in the workforce and how we are earning considerably less than men. And, but we don't necessarily emphasize the fact that we need to ask for it. We need to ask for it. Where does that ask come from? It's from that sense of knowing our worth, knowing what we're contributing to. And then we keep going down and down into the deeper layers. It's understanding that there is true worth in the female and the feminine, 
in this world. There is deep need, deep, deep need for the feminine and the female in this world. And that doesn't have to come through a female body, you know, but the, the other half of God, the other half of what it means to be divine is feminine, is female. And so when I was participating in this idea of doing everything volunteer, not charging ever, or kind of having this alms, you know, energy about me, I was doing a tremendous disservice to the whole legacy of the feminine. I was doing a disservice to the worth of Mary's message, you know, by not asking to be supported in what it is that I knew since I was a little girl reading those, those short stories to my family. I knew that that's my, my contribution. I wanted it to be, you know, something more visibly good, like social work. I kept trying to be a childcare worker. I can't tell you how many organizations I've worked with, with children and teens. I wanted to do work that was so visibly and clearly good. But that was my ego. My ego wanted that. And the accolades of like, whoa, what a great person you are. Look at this great contribution you're making in the world. But what I needed to align with, which I knew, which scared me more than anything, was that I had to write because that was my truest contribution. And I don't, have to understand why. I finally understood also, which was what helped me align with it, is that I don't get to judge how any writing in the world does of mine. I don't get to judge it. I don't have to judge it. So I just have to merge and listen to, take my stethoscope every day to my heart and just listen to that italicized voice. That's my soul work. And whether a book ever does well or never sells or has great reception or not, that's none of my business. That isn't for me. The only thing I need to do is to make sure my life has become about that union of listening to my heart. And it sounds like it's even, it's not even just that you don't get to judge how your writing is received, but also that you don't judge the fact that your contribution is through your writing. Right. Exactly. 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 Because I did that for many years, just feeling like I wasn't doing enough. And, you know, the, the enough, I'm not enough. I'm not that too. I just feel like resonates the world over with so many that that idea that we're not enough and um the the healing that i felt happened for me personally which i had to do before i could really write mary magdalene revealed was understanding that worth and that that calling is between me and my soul and 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 no one else that's beautiful. I'm going to ask you one, one more question before I go into the last part of the interview, which is this idea of this deep work, which is really what you're speaking to right now, of revealing the truth of who we are. For you, there's the writing, but what, what was that that you had to come up against to truly reveal? What does that look like for you, revealing the truth of who you are? So... We've mentioned the, the metaphor of veils and the, the sort of phoenix myth that we die, we kind of go up in flames and then we emerge from the ashes, you know, the, the, the resurrection, the death and the resurrection again and again. For me, it looks like allowing the ego, identifying and understanding what is ego about the story of who I am, allowing that to die. And of course, that doesn't happen all at once or forever. It happens in these, in these waves, in these veils, in these moments where a story of myself dies and mm-hmm. then something new can emerge. So let me 
let me give an example. I, I think the most compelling one was uh, around Mary Magdalene revealed. So, so there were there were many many egoic uh, selves that died for me to be able to write reveal. And then with each next book I was able to create, I feel like there there were these moments of deaths and resurrections. The Gospel of Philip says it so well, which is another ancient text that was not included in the formation of the Bible in the fourth century, along with Mary's gospel. But the gospel of Philip says resurrect in this life. So the emphasis is that everything we say, we say in this body, nothing can happen outside of this body. We must resurrect while in this body. The amount of anxiety that I experienced in trying to write about Mary Magdalene was just absolutely uh, profound. I circled all the way back to my first encounters with anxiety, general anxiety. There's nothing funny about it. I just was having like just these out of body, just panic attacks that would last days. I mean, it's the amount of, of anxiety. So I had to do a deeper layer of healing with trauma work and PTSD. And I had to heal really in the way I'd described it and felt it was all the way back and all the way through to really like my first trauma. And there was this story or this idea, who was I to write about Mary's gospel? Who was I? And when I really got down to the the bottom of what is what is this story? What's the ticker tape message that's sounding, that's creating this anxiety? Every time I try to sit down and write, I like to say that I'm not necessarily spiritual. It's that I have to utilize so many spiritual tools just to be able to sit still and really hear that voice and align with it. And and with this book, it was the most pronounced. And when I got to to sort of the river beneath the river of what was going on. What I, what I heard was that there was this, this core belief, this core question of who do I think I am that I could write about Mary's gospel. And meanwhile, I went to Smith. I, I got a theological degree at Harvard. I got a master's of divinity at Union at Columbia. I've studied with profound theologians like who is I to be saying who am I, you know, to do it? And who really is that I ultimately that's saying it through me? But I had to get to that, that individual, that particular sense of having been brought low, of having been made to feel unworthy. But isn't like one traumatic event. It can just be our experience in the world. Like if, if, we are discriminated against, if we're made fun of, if we're bullied, if we're somehow singled out for being different, we, we can grow into that story of feeling less than. And I feel like at different points in my life, I had to heal it or address it and look at it. But this was like, I had to fundamentally shift it in order to even write that first sentence of Mary Magdalene Revealed. And so literally the majority of the time it took me to write the book was about healing and reaching back to that story that my body had been holding of that moment when I felt less than and, and bringing love to it where it hadn't been. And then really understanding, because of course we do understand that this isn't about us. You know, anything we create ultimately isn't about us. It's about turning that little red coffee stir, like rather than having it float, it's putting it in the ocean itself and, and understanding that when, when we try to make it a, be about our own little ego, like our own little I, it, it is only just a tiny little, little drop, 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 you know, they can get through of that great big unsayable love. But when, when we can heal that core trauma or many, many, you know, 
microaggressions or many traumas throughout our life, it, when we can heal that and bring love to those moments when we were meant to feel less than, then it's like we become it and, and we can let go, we can release the I, the ego, and, and we can just it literally, it's an opening up and an understanding emerging with that so that it's not about us anymore. So we can merge with it and just let it flow. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this just brings me into the last part. I always do a gratitude and what you just shared really solidified for me something about what I want to say. But first, what I always do before that is, and then I'll ask a final question, is share where people can find you. So to find anything about Megan, her three books, the latest one, as she mentioned, Mary Magdalene Revealed, any events, any, anything, any that anything she's offering is at meganwaterson.com and it's M E G G A N W A T T E R S O N.com. And the, the, the gratitude piece is I've often wondered, I've actually wondered this for most of my life uh, is how do you stand strongly in what you believe in without it being um, this force of either anger or proving or pushing against, because I haven't seen many models of that. And then I'm listening to you and it's like this, all these dots are connecting because you bring full on passion full-on presence and all that you feel strongly about is right there front and center, but it's wrapped in this deep love so that you, it's almost like you're just gifting us with your passion. It's just like, wow, that's what it is. That's what it is to, to embody that kind of passion, but then actually gift people with it. It's not a forcing, it's not a, a pushing. And, and so I'm so grateful for that because that was an incredible example. And I've noticed it before, but I wasn't able to say what it was. And it's amazing. So thank you for that. Thank you. With that, I actually, I'm going to, I don't ever do this, but I'm just going to read two or three things you said, and then I'll ask a last question because these are things that, that we got to in some ways, but not exactly. And I just want them said, which is one thing is the funny part is that it's also simple. What we are meant to do is who we are, nothing more. Our soul work is merely an extension of our own essence. It just takes such an effort for so many of us to get that naked, which you've talked about, to simply let what we do be who we are. And then this other one, you were talking about neti neti, which is a, mm-hmm. another idea, but is ultimately about discernment. It is the art of seeing clearly, of piercing through obscurity and knowing which way is not necessarily the right way according to anyone else, but is the only way our own soul is telling us to go. Mm-hmm. And I, that's clearly been a big theme of this conversation. So I just wanted to add that in. And then I think the last question I want to ask It's not really a neat tying everything up question, but it's something we haven't spoken to and it feels important, which is this, what you call the sacred feminine art of doing nothing. And this allowing this feminine way of being that allows for the natural flow to unfold. And we have actually woven some of that into this conversation, but I, the, it feels important to speak about because we are so driven by the masculine. I mean, even driven by this masculine to do, to do, to do. And that can really get in the way of both the listening and what gets created from that. Right. So can you speak to that in terms of oh, yeah. the work? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm seeing that word again that we started with, which is Gnosticism. And the idea here is 
knowing yourself completely, but experiencing it. So that knowledge is not something that can be challenged with the intellect, right? It's something you experience inside of you to such an extent you don't need anyone else outside of you to know it for you. So what I came to experience, that great big unsayable love inside of me, I don't need anybody else to know it with me. It is a joy and it is a bliss. And it is, as I said, like entering into a church I, I truly belong to whenever I do meet someone who, who also shares in that great big unsayable love. But I don't need anybody else to know it with me. What I, I know that love in a way where I know it completely. I experience it as a truth inside my body and I live it. And that guides me. So the other point of that knowing is the aspect of the worth, that I am worthy of such proximity to that great big unsayable love. Because when we don't feel worthy of such tremendous guidance, such powerful, complete knowing, then we feel like we have to prove it, either to ourselves or to somebody else. We have to earn it. We have to show. We have to you know, put on a whole bunch of peacock feathers and be like, this is why you should believe what I believe or, and, and we, we, we go through all of these struts and pomps and circumstances in order to demonstrate that we're worthy of something that actually is just inherent. It's a birthright. It's a birthright. So I think that can allow for a way of moving in the world that's inherently different from what we're ordinarily taught which is to, to push and to push and to market and to, you know, have all those ways of reaching out like flash, flash, flash. But I've always loved, again, Anne Lamont is really strong right now in me, but she has this incredible quote about a lighthouse doesn't go running around <laughs> trying to spread its light. It just stands there and radiates. Yeah. Like that to me is the essence of connecting to the truth of who you are and then just radiating that truth. There is a power in just rooting deeper and deeper and deeper into who you are. And, and because this world is so magical, powerful, beyond, beyond words, ineffable, the deeper you reach into the truth of who you are, the farther you reach all those who are cut from your same cloth, the farther your own particular light can shine and reach. Thank you so much, Megan. That was beautiful. Thank you for the way you listen in the space that you hold for me to share. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beyond Podcast with your host, Daphne Cohn. If this conversation has moved you or inspired you in some way, take some time with it. Let the words and the wisdom settle in. And if you feel called to share this episode with someone else, please do. For all show notes and past episodes and to learn about all offerings, go to DaphneCohn.com or WithinCommunity.com. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that over on iTunes or Spotify, and you can review it over at iTunes. Thank you for listening.